I'm aware that um, marketers spend a lot of money to figure out how to communicate a message that will make an impact. And that which typically and repeatedly makes the biggest impact is a real life and a real story. And I'm reminded of that again today. You look at the flower dedication and Paul Kalanithi and his life and his real story but especially reading recently a tribute that Bill Gates wrote about his book, When Breath Becomes Air. He was very impacted by this book. And Bill Gates writes, this book definitely earned my admiration and tears. At the end, he says, I'm certain I will read When Breath Becomes Air again. The short book has so many layers of meaning and so many interesting juxtapositions, life and death, patient and doctor, son and father, work and family, faith and reason. I know I'll pick up more insights the second time around. Wow, what an impact. A real life, a real amazing life. When God wants to get our attention, often God wanted to get the attention of God's people and would speak through prophets, and would speak through prophets asking them to do things that communicated the actual message. For instance, Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament, was asked to shave his head with a sword and then to take the hair and distribute it in three parts in a symbolic way. He was asked to pack up all his belongings from his house for exile, and then while the people were watching, to take them all outside of his house. A lot of things. The prophet Jeremiah was asked to buy a field when they were actually occupied by the enemy. Buy a field as a sign of hope. Prophet Jeremiah was also asked not to marry and not to have any children, which was to symbolize the imminent disaster that was going to overtake God's people. There is a phrase for this. It's called an enacted prophecy, where God is asking real people to do things that will wake the people up get their attention, make an impact. And there is no more dramatic or powerful enacted prophecy in all of Scripture than the prophet Hosea. We're going to be in this book for four weeks, beginning today. And for that reason, I invite you to take the Bible that's in the pew rack in front of you and find it. It's about right in the middle of the Bible. It's the beginning of the minor prophets. It's after Daniel. Isaiah, Jeremiah is a big book. After Jeremiah, after Daniel, we're going to be in Hosea 1. And let me lead us in prayer as we prepare to hear these words out of Hosea 1. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be not only acceptable, but pleasing in your sight. Our rock, our redeemer, 
the one who wants to be known and loved. Amen. Hosea 1, beginning at verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take for yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And then the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have pity on the house of Israel or forgive them. But I will have pity on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and bore a son. And then the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. This is the gift of God's word. Thanks be to God. The scandal of Hosea. Receiving these instructions, this specific directive from God, go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. And then the reason is given right up front. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And he does it. He vows himself in covenant love to a woman named Gomer who gives herself to other men, not to Hosea. She has three illegitimate children, and the names of these children communicate what is going on here, not between Hosea and Gomer, but between Israel and God. And the third name says it all. Name him Lo-Ami, which in Hebrew means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Several weeks ago in this very sanctuary, we read out of Exodus 24, and we read about a destination wedding. Some of you were here for that. And that destination wedding was between God and God's people. It was out in the wilderness, on Mount Sinai. That was the destination. And God said, in covenant, I will be your God, made that vow. And the people made a vow right back. We will be your people. And this was Israel's identity. This was their destiny. This was what they lived for, to know God's covenant love and to actually reveal God's covenant love to the whole world. This relational God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, intimate within the Godhead, wanting to be known through a people and this relationship with a people. And Moses warned them right up front, this is not going to be easy for you to do. 
to be faithful, especially in times of prosperity. Deuteronomy 8, Moses writes, Take care that you do not forget the Lord your God when you've eaten your fill, you've built fine houses, you live in them, your herds and your flocks have multiplied, your silver and gold is multiplied, all that you have is multiplied. Do not exalt yourself, forgetting the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And now here they are, doing that very thing. Under King Jeroboam II, they have enjoyed 40 years of prosperity and economic stability. It's been a golden era for Israel. They have great political influence in the world, military power. They're living lavishly. Their leaders are quite wealthy. They were lulled into a comfortable blindness, confident of the Lord's blessing, while slowly but surely being seduced into following and serving the Canaanite fertility god, Baal. And so the prophet writes in chapter 2, she said, I will go after my lovers. They give me bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil and who lavished upon her silver and gold that they used for Baal. So God directs Hosea to do this shocking thing, to wake them up. And this scandal, the scandal points beyond a man of God married to a prostitute, which is shocking and scandalous. But it's really about God. God with a prostituted people. Ugh. God, not just a man of God. So Hosea is basically saying, look in the mirror. This is you. Be horrified and return to the Lord. So did it work? Did the prophecy, this enacted prophecy of Hosea work? Not really. They really saw nothing wrong with what they were doing until it was too late. After they'd already been conquered by Assyria, reaping the consequences, a.k.a. judgment, that they themselves had sowed. And then several hundred years later, the bottom southern part, Judah, same thing happened to them, completely decimated by the Babylonians and not really appreciating what went wrong until after the fact. And so now Hosea's message is handed to future generations like us in hopes that it will be a sobering wake-up call for us when we are being unfaithful an unfaithful covenant partner to God. I will be your God. You shall be my people. This is still our calling. This is the heart of what we're focused on this first half of the year. From our guide to spiritual maturity, 
come home. This is what we've basically said aloud that we support and that we are about several weeks ago when Leela O'Connor was baptized. This morning, with Stella being baptized. Next week, Liz Vincent's going to be baptized. We're taking vows, and we are saying, we will be God's people. God will be our God. So how are we doing Well, the evidence for the answer to that question is not what we say in here. It's how we live our lives every day out there. When I was in Romania a few weeks ago with our mission team, one of the most shocking things that I heard while there really wasn't even about Romania. It was about us. We had a lot of time to ride in the bus, and so we were riding in the bus one day, um, and I was talking with Tamara Bean, who was the staff person who works for World Vision US, who came with us on our team and on our trip. And she was telling me that support for Syrian refugees through World Vision, this disaster relief organization that is so powerful, and they're the ones that work in Romania, the work that we went to see, that it's actually been reduced over this last year. Fewer people are giving to the Syrian refugees and the refugees from Iraq. And I'm like, really? To me, that was stunning because of the news that has come out about what a humanitarian crisis this is and what a horrific, uniquely uh, horrific situation this is. So she sent me the link, and I was reading about this. This is a survey they did. And indeed, Americans are now less willing to respond to the needs of refugees affected by the conflict than they were a year ago, according to the findings of World Vision's second annual survey on Americans' willingness to help refugees, particularly those affected by the conflicts in Syria and Iraq. And this is not just Americans, this is American Christians. And it goes on to say the percentage of Christians who say that they are willing to pray for refugees has dropped 11% from last year. It's just a wake-up call, truly. So that when I saw this recent piece written by Sojourners titled American Christianity Has Failed, I couldn't help but read it with interest. Sojourners writes, For the last few years, Christians have been singing worship songs that include lyrics like, Keep my eyes above the waves when oceans rise, and yet have rejected refugees who've seen loved ones die beneath waves who themselves have literally struggled to keep from drowning in oceans. Wow. Has our prosperity dulled our senses? Have we been seduced to be listening to and trusting in the gods of the land? The beginning of February, every uh, year, there are 30-plus pastors, Presbyterian pastors, who meet annually, a covenant group of pastors. We've been getting together for decades. And we get together to, to learn, to grow, to pray. And these are people from all over this country, from Texas, from Georgia, from Michigan, um, all over. And so Mark Laverton, who's the president of Fuller Theological Seminary, he gathered us one morning just to talk about the state of the church And so as we were sitting in a circle, he said, what I want you to do 
is I want you, as you think of the global church, I want you to just say out loud adjectives that come to mind when you think about the church around the world. And so these adjectives came out of our mouths, and there were a lot of words like suffering and courageous and words that you could say describe Jesus in a lot of ways. And then he shifted the question. He said, and I want you to think of the American church, and I I want you to just say out loud adjectives that come to mind. And I can't tell you all the adjectives. They had a lot to do with anxiety. But they weren't necessarily positive, and the contrast was striking. I don't know if that was his intent, but after he said, wow, listen to that. It was a wake-up call. So what is the problem? Maybe part of it is that like God's people in Hosea's day, we think that everything is fine because they didn't really wake up until they were subjected to exile. You've heard me quote Dr. Carl Menninger when he would ask his medical students, he would ask them, what is the most important task in medicine? He would wait for their answer, and they would think carefully and say things like the relationship between the doctor and the patient or the way that you think about and prescribe treatment and medication. And after they offered all their suggestions, he said the first and most important task of healing is diagnosis. And Hosea... The scandal here, I think, is meant to be a diagnosis. Wake up. This is you. You are not my people. I am not your God. For us to recognize how that might be true about us today. For me, I realized one of the greatest things that came out of the election was a wake-up in terms of an idolatry, and I don't use that word lightly, but my own idolatry of country. Without even knowing it, I was expecting justice to come from the United States, justice for the world, and in some ways, salvation for the world. I know that sounds silly. But yes, this country is asked to be a source of justice, but that's true of every country. And every leader is designed and created to serve God's justice and purposes in the world. So it was interesting for me to realize, you know what? I was expecting justice to come from the United States. It comes from God. Justice comes from God. Salvation comes from God. We can do a similar thing with technology. I can expect technology to solve all the problems in the world. Technology is a tool. It is God who solves all the problems in the world. And technology is meant to serve God's goodness, God's greatness in this world. I can do the same thing with education. That wisdom and guidance for our lives will come from our university educations or our great education. No, a good education is meant to help us discern God's call, God's purpose for why each one of us is here uniquely. Wisdom comes from God, and all of our education is meant to serve God's wisdom in the world. 
I will go after my lovers. They give me bread, my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil. The best thing about the book of Hosea can be seen in his name. Hosea in Hebrew is Yeshua. Yeshua is where we get the name Jesus. Jesus means God saves. There is deliverance. And it comes to us personally, in the flesh, in Jesus Christ, who, as he's hanging on the cross, cries out this cry of horror, also called the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is this horror And where did that forsakenness, that God-forsakenness, come from? Not from Jesus. Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom, have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. We, we forsake God's covenant love for us. And it all is taken by Jesus defeated by Jesus and handed to us is healing and a new beginning. But friends, we cannot take it. We cannot receive it. We cannot own it before we can own the diagnosis. Before we can know our own way of living on faithfulness. God. What will save us? It's not the Silicon Valley. It's not our education. It's not America. It's not our political leaders. The scandalous language of Hosea tells us in chapter 2, the language of our covenant God vowed to a covenant people to a bride. Therefore, I will now allure her. I'll bring her back into the wilderness. Speak tenderly to her. And on that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. I will make for you a covenant on that day with the wild animals, the birds of the air, the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. I will take you for my wife forever. I will take you for my wife in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will take you for my wife in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, wake us up this morning, not so that we will despair, but so that we will turn, turn toward you and be healed and be your people and be your witness in this world.
in and through the scandalous and shocking and amazing love that has come to us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are amazed at your love for us. And we pray that you will turn us toward you to see it, to see our sin, but more than that, to see your love beckoning. Amen.